Hi, and welcome to this episode of our Hierarchies of Development podcast. My name is Ingrid, and I'm a lecturer in international development at King's College, London. And I'm Basil, joining you from the European Association of Development Research and Training Institutes. In each episode of this podcast, we talk to two researchers about a pressing development issue. Together, we explore different hierarchies of development. As the title suggests, we focus on how inequalities are organized in enduring ways. This means that we engage with discussions on political economy and power. And our aim is to make this podcast accessible to everyone, so we really hope that some of your listeners will come from outside academia. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to this new episode of our podcast on hierarchies of development. As usual, we'd like to start by thanking our colleague Jonas Bauhoff at ERD, who is the man behind the curtain, ensuring that all technical matters are sorted. So moving on from environmental hierarchies, which was the topic of our last episode, we're now jumping into a discussion on labor hierarchies. Yes, we thought this would be a very interesting topic to address in this podcast, given how precarious labor has become increasingly visible in the wake of the pandemic, but also because it is now clear that the impacts of COVID were felt very differently on workers across the world. A really timely topic. And to talk about labor hierarchies, we have here with us today two great scholars joining us from India and from Italy. Our first speaker is Rosa Abraham from Ajim Premji University in Bangalore. Rosa, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. So Rosa, you are an economist and a researcher based, as Ingrid said, um, in India at Aziz Premji University and uh, where you work on the Indian labor market. Prior to that, you also worked as a researcher at the Ashoka Trust for Research in Ecology and Environment, and also at the Madras School of Economics. You focus in particular on issues related to the informal sector and to women's work in India. And you recently took a closer look at the effects of the pandemic on the Indian labor market, which is something we will look into some more details today. You've also engaged with the media by publishing articles in newspapers such as the Indian Express or Hindustan Times. Our second speaker today is Lucia Pradella from King's College London in the UK. So Lucia, you are a senior lecturer in international political economy, and you have a background in philosophy, social sciences, and migration studies. You've also worked at Brunel University, the School of African and Oriental Studies, and Kafoskari University. And among your research interests are labor, production, and poverty, imperialism, and anti-imperialism, as well as migration and racism. And you're also active beyond academia with contributions to a lot of media outlets, including The Guardian and Jacobin. Lucia, thanks a lot for taking the time to join us today. Thanks for inviting me, everyone. Okay, so before we start looking into labor hierarchies in more detail, let's start here with a brief question, which is usually how we start these episodes about general question about science and society today, or social science and society. Both of you are looking at labor, although from very different perspectives, as we will see and also in very different contexts. The debate around immigration and labor has shifted in the past years in a very toxic direction, with increasingly large segments of the population supporting simplistic arguments along the line immigration is destroying employment opportunities for locals. And in India as well, similar phenomena can be observed where certain minorities are often blamed for structural problems in the labor market. So just as with climate change denials, Political discourse around labor tends to be increasingly polarized and structured along simplistic lines. So then our question to both of you would be, how do you perceive this problem? What do you see as the role for academics today uh, in society in this context where we notice a rising number of attacks towards knowledge production in academia itself? How can academics contribute to the debate on labor and migration with society at large? So Rosa, would you like to start? Yeah, so as Ingrid and Kasil have said, yeah, this is definitely the sort of huge lurking problem in the employment in labor market in India. And it's not a pandemic phenomenon, let's be clear about it. It's not it's something that has been happening way beyond the pandemic. And it extends not just in the case in the form of there not being enough work, but also the fact that the work that has been created is increasingly informal and precarious. 
So a part of this comes from the nature of development that India has undertaken. It was largely began as a as a manufacturing led growth, which then became more of a services led growth, with the services sector then creating this kind of informal work and the manufacturing sector also moving towards a lot of informalization within the formal sector, and that is something that has sort of come into the fore now. But only in terms of the um, of the academics of it, what we see really in India is a lack of engagement by the policymakers in addressing this question, and that is where the role of academics comes in. So, for instance, we at the center have been bringing out state of working India reports, which are these annual publications, which looks at either which tries to take a comprehensive look at the Indian labour market. Uh, addressing questions like who are India's workers, what are the kinds of work they do, what is the nature of work, and what is the are these sort of good jobs? We've also been looking at you know what is the employment challenge and what are the ways in which the employment challenge can be addressed, either through the provision of basic services or creation of an employment guarantee program in urban areas as well. So, what academic in that context, the role really is to sort of do a deep dive into these issues while understanding these issues and but also bringing this into the mainstream one of the things that i have found in my work in the context of the indian labor market is really that you know sort of conventional measures of labor market that have been used in sort of this developed country context which we've sort of taken over and applied in india don't really hold water and don't really have the same interpretations and so as a labor econ- economist in in the indian context i think it's really also important to talk about what should we be looking at is it just a simple measure of participating in the labor market should we move beyond just that is the unemployment rate for instance the right measure to look at so informing public debate as well as policy through these kind of discussions i think is a crucial role for academics to play Thank you very much, Rosa, for this. I think we have already a lot to think about for the discussion to come. So thank you for uh, setting the stage or setting the big picture for us, for India. When it comes to European context, Lucia, could you tell us a bit more about what you think is the role of academics in this context? How can they contribute to the debate on labor and migration with society at large? Sure, thanks for your question. Well, I think that we live in a kind of contradictory situation because it's true that on the one side, this kind of exclusionary and racist arguments are um, becoming stronger. But it's also quite clear that in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, the role of workers, including immigrant workers in the economy, has become more visible. There is quite a lot of debate about the rhetoric of essential workers, and very often essential workers are also immigrant workers with low rights, with very little rights, low income, and, and so on, and very precarious lives. But at the same time, of course, their importance in the economy has become more visible. And we also had a series of uh, movements, quite strong movements for racial justice in the United States, in the UK like Black Lives Matter, that also opened up spaces for debate around racism and colonialism and the continuing realities of Western imperialism. And so I think, yeah, so we need to navigate this kind of contradictory space we are in. And as far as the role of scholars, especially critical scholars, is I think that it's important to develop a global understanding of these processes of migration, understanding that goes beyond methodological nationalism and this kind of understanding of Europe as an isolated space where people come from the outside. And it's important to locate contemporary migration within the global economy and also understanding the impact of borders on labor in order to overcome this idea that uh, one, borders are really aimed at uh, keeping people out. (laughs) And secondly, that somehow they will uh, protect the native-born workers. Thank you for all of this detailed entry into the the matter, Lucia. I think this is really interesting because we already have a sense 
of the, the two sort of traditional approaches that both of you, Rosa, as an economist and Lucia as a political economist, have on, on these problems. Thanks both of you for these opening lines. I would like now to move into questions slightly more focused on your profiles as researchers. So I will start with Rosa here. So Rosa, as we said, you're working at Aziz Premji University. Could you tell us a little, could you tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself? In particular, I would like to know what brought you to this field of study, what brought you to research the Indian labor market, particularly along gender lines, since you have um, now several research pieces and papers published along this dimension. So basically what led you where you are today? And is there something specific that attracted you to work at the institution where you are currently based? Honestly, I would say that I sort of stumbled into economics. It was a sort of a process of elimination where I didn't like anything else. And economics seemed to be that option which didn't rule out a lot of other options. But I think it was in the course of my master's at the Madras School of Economics where I really, you know, really got interested in the subject and the way it kind of addressed some real world things that you see, at least it, it addresses and I will, I mean, the fact that how it addresses it and the tools it uses may not be particularly real world in many ways, but I think that was what really attracted me. At Azim Premji University, so soon after I finished my PhD, so my PhD was on looking at the informal work in the formal sector and looking at this trend in informalization. Soon after I finished my PhD, I came to know of this Center for Sustainable Employment, which was going to be set up as a research center in the university. And uh, since my work was on the labor market and the center was going to look closely at labor market issues, it was a very natural fit for me to come there. Besides the fact, besides that, it was also you know a, a wonderful group of uh, economists that I could get uh, get an opportunity to in interact with, uh, including Amit Basole and Anand Srivastava, as well as Surabhi Kesar, who later joined the center. So it was really a, a huge opportunity for me, which I couldn't uh, say no to in a sense. At the center, my work, like I said, includes working on our annual publication, which is the State of Working India reports which basically focuses every year on different themes. And our latest State of Working India report was specifically looking at the impact of COVID in the Indian labor market. Besides that, we I've also been involved in a few primary surveys at the center. So one of these surveys is the India Working Survey. And what we are trying to look, do with the India Working Survey was to look at what is the role of social identities and how do they frame labor market outcomes and how do these interact? So this was a, a survey of two states in India and basically trying to understand experiences of discrimination. But also we also were particularly interested in labor statistics and how even the measurement of work is really conditioned on uh, social identities. My interest in gender honestly has sort of really developed after my work work with the center and interacting with people at the center. Of course, as a scholar working on the informal economy, I think it's only natural that you also are confronted with the very gendered nature in which the labor market functions and how it is particularly disadvantages to women. Yeah, that's broadly what I've been looking at and what really excites me. Thank you, Rosa. This, this seems um, very, certainly very interesting. So you've talked a little bit about numbers and statistics. So actually, this provides a perfect link to, to a sort of opening question I had about, about India for you, which I think will be of interest to many listeners because it's an interesting societal puzzle. My question is concerned with the participation of women in the labor force at the national level in India, so at large. Because in India, we observe a decline in women participation rate in the labor force since the mid-2000s. I mean, when I was preparing this episode with Ingrid, uh, we checked the World Bank data for that. Um, and the latest figures report, if I'm not wrong, a participation rate of around just slightly above 20%, somewhere around 21-22%, down from above 30% in the sort of 1990s. The trajectory then that India seems to follow is very different from that of neighboring countries like Pakistan or Bangladesh, which have seen opposite trajectories, even though uh, the data seems to show a reverting trend for Pakistan from 2015 onwards. But currently, participation uh, of women in the, in the national labor force in Bangladesh is about somewhere oscillating between 35 and 40 percent. 
whereas in India, as I said, it is just above 20%. So what is your view regarding this trend? What, according to you, can explain this declining trend? I mean, there's two aspects here. One is the trend itself, so the fact that it is declining over time, but also the absolute uh, or, or the general level of participation of women at a given point in time, which is very low. So, Rosa, would you be able to explain to us why this is the case? Yeah, so I think, yeah, let me try and answer that based on the two sort of factors we've identified. One is the low, low levels and then the declining trend. So to start with, if I were to talk about the low levels, um, I'm going to go back to the measurement question. So, of course, and I think this is not just an India-specific issue, that there is genuinely a question of women's work not being adequately measured. Um, so there has been work in the Indian context, in particular states in India, where they find that when you ask women about household production, where they engage in small-scale production in the house, and that is actually production of goods for sale, so it really comes within the sort of national account system of work and employment, uh, this really bumps up our labor force participation. So there's clearly a measurement question. And in our work at the center too, one of the recent things that we are looking at is, does it matter who is being asked this question of work? So typically when, a, when these labor market surveys are done, the enumerator goes to the household and tends to interview the head of the household. It's often not done in private. There's a lot of people participating in these enumeration and roster collection. And what we are finding in the center is that we, we actually did an experiment where we asked men to report about their work. We also asked them to talk about their wives' work. And similarly, we talked to those wives and asked them to talk about their work and then asked them to talk about their husband's work. So we have a very clear, you know, self-reported measurement uh, labor force participation. We also have proxy reported labor force participation. And here what we find is the moment you ask men about wives' work, they typically underestimate or underreport women's work. So there is this question of who is being asked. There's also the question of who, what is being asked. We also did an exercise where if you ask women a simple question of what did you do last week uh, or did you do any work employment activity that last week, they typically do not identify any employment activity. Whereas when we ask them detailed questions where we explicitly culled out each kind of uh, in employment activity, did you do small scale production? Did you help in the farm? Did you uh, do any wage work? We specifically called out each of these activities. Just that simple exercise of talking about each kinds of work and kind of helping them recall that work bumps up the labor force participation. So who is being asked matters, what is being asked matters when it comes to measuring women's work. So one of the reasons for the low labor force participation could be that it's just not, we're just not able to capture women's work properly, women's employment properly. But on the other hand, there is definitely a genuine problem of low levels of paid employment uh, for women. And on this, I'll come to the, so there is, you know, there's a lot of work around this. One of this is the, the social norms that, that in higher income households, the fact that a woman works is sort of looked down upon. And um, so it is sort of that households prefer to keep their women away from the labor market when their incomes have improved beyond a certain level. Uh, there is also mobility restrictions that women face and safety and lack of uh, adequate transportation facilities. So these are infrastructural and sort of constraints on the supply side. Um, on the demand side, what has happened is that there is just not adequate jobs being created. So women have for, been have exited the agricultural sector and then they have not been able to find suitable work in other sectors. And this comes back to the larger problem of the employment challenge that Indian economy is faced with. And as we all know, when work is scarce, um, women are often the first to be rationed out of that labor market. Thank you so much, Rosa. This is really interesting. And I have quite a few follow-up questions, but um, I'd like to just move on to Lucia to bring her in first, and then we can come back to more details about your research. So Lucia, uh, you've done really interesting work on excavating the anti-colonial work of Marx, both in your own research and in terms of bringing radical scholarship together through special issues and seminar series and edited volumes. And you're also incredibly busy supporting student initiatives to decolonize Kings and in the labor union at Kings. 
So could you tell us a bit more about yourself and how you came to this point? So what brought you to this kind of research and activism, especially this kind of anti-colonial and labor activism, would be really interesting to hear more about. Thanks, Ingrid. Well, I grew up in a time of contestation to neoliberal globalization and the NATO war against Yugoslavia in the late 90s. And I have always been active in, in these movements. And then I, when I studied in, in Venice, I studied philosophy and um, I actually wanted to study Marx. And I wrote my dissertation about Marx's capital. And my professor, I must say that I went to Berlin and because I wanted to study Marx in German and attended various capital tutoriums and so on. But then when I came back, my professor said, well, if you're writing on Marx, then write about the current relevance of Marxist capital. So not to lose this connection with the kind of reality, just not to go into abstract value theory and so on. Yeah, so, so I think one of the motives behind uh, my or my goals behind or of my reading of Marx in the early 2000 was to contribute to the anti or alter globalization movement. It was a time when uh, Tony Negri's theory of empire was quite uh, influential and I disagreed and I wanted to show uh, how Marx and capital were relevant to understanding contemporary imperialism. And so what I did was to read Marx's Capital in the light of Marx's readings on colonialism and try to find out why somehow they didn't seem to have a very important place within volume one. And then I came uh, <laughs> to uh, different conclusions and actually thinking that Marx was uh, trying to analyze an imperialist system in, in volume one. And I think that this kind of attempt to, on the one side, do some theoretical work on Marxist capital or the history of political economy and on the other side link it up with uh, uh, social movements has really characterized my work over the years and I always try to combine the two sides. I have a follow-up on that specifically. As you said, I mean you do both theory and empirical work. Yeah, I'd like to follow up about the theory since you just brought it up. And especially, you know, how Marx is often considered Eurocentric, as we know from like dependency theorists writing in the global south who rebelled against what they considered to be this like Eurocentric Marxist that didn't consider the particularities of the post-colonial countries. And we also know from post-colonial theorists that many of them see Marx as a supporter of European colonialism. So what you're saying, you know, is that, and you also write about this in your article, Marx in the Global South, that Marx, you know, did write about colonialism in a very uh, sort of anti-colonial way in some of his uh, notebooks. And so you find in that article that Marx and Marxism actually holds this strong potential for anti-colonial scholarship and practice. So can you explain a little bit more uh, why Marx is often considered Eurocentric and what you found in this article and in his notebooks that leads you to the opposite conclusion? Well, I think that there has been an interpretation of Marxist capital going back to the late 19th century that uh, sees Marxist capital as focused mainly on a national economy and not considering foreign investment, international migration, and basically the imperialist system of the, the British economy. And this, uh, which was the model, of course, of uh, volume one, and this kind of interpretation has characterized the history of Marxism itself. So both Lenin and Rosa Luxemburg, for example, share this view, even if uh, with different positions about that. And uh, also characterizes dependency theory and several post-colonial scholars. And what I think is that, well, this is a misinterpretation of volume one. And what I, I was doing in the early 2000s when I was writing my dissertation was like, I can't understand how Marx was writing all these articles about India, China, the United States that he considered to be an English colony still in the late 19th century and not really include them in, in volume one. And that's why then I kept reading and I came to the conclusion that in the section about capital reproduction, he's not looking at the national economy, but instead is posing the English uh, system to be completely globalized uh, in order to understand the actual expansion 
of that system at the time, uh, which was clearly not a national economy. And to be honest, I don't think any economist at the time would consider it a national economy. And then, yes, and then when I went to Berlin to work at the Marx Engels Gesamtausgabe, I found um, the it was a personal discovery in the sense that I didn't know about it, but there is this entire section of the new historical critical edition that presents all uh, Marx's notebooks or may- maybe most of his notebooks. And this shows really that uh, he studied a huge amount of books and articles on world history from the very beginning. And I think this kind of work, in partly because his articles on colonialism were published in the 20th century, and these notebooks have come to light only later, has not really been integrated in the interpretation of his thought. And also the his main work capital was basically quite a high level of, of abstraction. And therefore, it's not completely clear, even though there are several parts on colonialism, it's not completely clear the the place that is that colonialism plays uh, within the, the system. On the one side, there is a philological issue, like the availability of texts and so on. And on the other side, I think that there has been in the history of the labor movement in Europe and in the West, a kind of separation between labor struggles and anti-colonial struggles that I think Marx was trying to overcome, at least in the case of Ireland. And therefore, there has been a kind of lack of serious engagement with these writings, even after they were published. Thank you, Lucia, for this. I actually want to pick up very briefly before Ingrid continues with your research. Um, in one of your papers mentioned on this, uh, where, where you talk about these anti-colonial views of Marx, you mentioned that the Taipei Revolution in China was particularly important in changing the views that Marx had about these issues. So could you Give us a little bit of background in a few sentences about this type of revolution and why does it matter? Why did it matter so much for, for Marx? Well, the typing revolution started in the uh, 1850s and it was in the wake of the opium wars that had led to a process of impoverishment, especially in the southern regions of China. And this basically created conditions for a peasant revolution that spread throughout the country and also led to some forms of communal organizations, social organizations, and changes in the conditions of women in in the country and so on. So it was uh, quite radical. And Marx saw it as a consequence of Western colonialism and the kind of consequences of it on China at the time. The uh, importance for Marx is that until the time of the 1848 revolutions in Europe, he thought that such a revolution would have led to the liberation of the colonies. And therefore, the agency, the revolutionary agency, was mainly placed among uh, workers in Europe who have also basically created conditions for the abolition of the colonial system. While it's in the wake of the Taiping Revolution that he understands that actually uh, there is agency outside of Europe and uh, these kind of processes can actually increase the factors of crisis and therefore create the conditions for such a revolution in Europe itself. And so from a kind of, uh, I would say, quite Eurocentric view of revolution in the late 40s, which was also due to some optimism, like he was hoping that actually this 1848 revolution would be the one. He came to realize that, well, this wasn't the case, but at the same time, there were more sources of social conflict and potential revolutionary movement around the world who could connect with each other and reinforce each other. Great. This is really, really interesting for the listeners to hear as well, because I think Marx is very often misunderstood. So your paper is really important in that context, and especially now where there are all, all these movements that are coming up to decolonize society and they're like gaining traction, whereas Marxism and Marx is not really, uh, well, very often not really considered relevant to those movements. So I think in that context, your work is also quite interesting to bringing Marx and um, anti-colonialism together. So it would be great to move on to your some of your empirical work. I um, read your paper on the Mediterranean. You wrote a really interesting article con- connecting imperialism and unfree labor in Libya 
with the Italian countryside called Bordering the Surplus Population across the Mediterranean. And if I understood correctly, you find that neocolonial extractivism in Libya expanded the amount of people available to take up work. And this happened in conjunction with the very hostile detention system in Libya and the militarization of EU borders, which again led to this wave of immigration towards Southern Europe and this migrant body ready to work under very exploitative conditions. And then you look at how Italy's agribusiness corporations benefit from the influx of Libyan immigrants, which also contrasts with the view that migrants are generally undes undesirable. So can you explain a bit more how you identify these underlying forces behind the wave of migration and the ways that migrants are integrated into the Italian labor market? Yes, as you said, actually, I think it's important to look at the role of Italian and Western imperialism in, in Africa and what we did in this article, Rosanna uh, Cillo and I, was to look at uh, migratory uh, movements, uh, especially after the 2011 NATO aggression on, on Libya that um, followed the uprisings in 2011. And uh, what we found out is that um, the kind of order that imposed itself after the war is an order based on the extraction of uh, Libyan resources and in order to facilitate the continuing extraction of uh, especially Libyan uh, natural wealth, Western corporations and Western states have uh, made a series of um, struck a series of deals with criminal militias that are also involved in the trafficking of human beings and the smuggling of petrol products and weapons and other products from Libya. And this process of, on the one side, for example, it's, I think it's quite telling that ANI, which is one of the main Italian oil and gas corporations, had actually the task of uh, paying the reparations for the crimes of Italian colonialism in Libya, as agreed with Gaddafi in the Treaty of Friendship in 2008. But after the war and then civil war that followed, Annie basically decided to stop paying the reparations, which were also aimed at basically funding some developmental projects in the country. And uh, yes, relied on these criminal militias to ensure the extraction of gas that goes to Europe. And at the same time, these same militias are involved in the smuggling of uh, oil from the country, which according to some calculations, for example, by the Libyan Audit Bureau, has led to a loss of about 20 billion US dollars between 2014 and 2017. So these, these militias are actually responsible for uh, the uh, impoverishment and the kind of situation of insecurity in the country. And we need to remember that Libya was one of the main immigration countries in Africa. It still is one of the main immigration countries. And before 2011, there were about 2.5 million immigrants living there from the Maghreb and the, the rest of Africa. And of course, the kind of impoverishment and insecurity that uh, followed the war has pushed uh, an increasing number of people, not just immigrants, but also Libyans uh, themselves to leave the country and uh, also find some prospects in Europe. In this context, the militarization of the EU borders hasn't really stopped this smuggling of oil and has basically turned a blind eye on all this, while it has focused on low-level smuggling and in this way has basically made the journey for a lot of people much more uh, dangerous, leading to increasing mortality in the Mediterranean. But the thing is that given that the EU is basically funding these militias that act as uh, Libyan coast guards and uh, are basically in charge of migration policies in the country, it's quite clear that it's not really stopping the, the conditions that lead people to leave the country. And uh, what happened in 2017 when we witnessed a kind of very significant drop in arrivals in, through the central Mediterranean route is that uh, the Italian interior minister, Marco Minniti, and the secret services 
struck deals with these militias and tribes that decided to focus on um, fuel smuggling and other illicit activities and basically start to enforce the migration policies and restrictions that they hadn't enforced in the previous years. So it's been a political choice on the part of these militias that were, of course, funded quite generously by Italy and by the European Union. And the same people are responsible for detention business and for forced labor that has spread throughout the country. And as you said, so we have created or we have uh, enabled this completely unacceptable situation to develop. And what emerged from interviews with the immigrants who came through Libya to Italy is that many of them didn't want to come to Italy in the first place. They either wanted to stay in Libya or go back to their countries. But once they were trapped in this mechanism of detention, forced labor, violence, and, and so on and so forth, the easiest solution is to go to Italy, is to cross the Mediterranean. And so I think something that emerged from that is that on the one side, people get trapped in this uh, hellish uh, situation in Libya. And then if and when they reach Italy through the Mediterranean, very often Libya continues to operate as a kind of um, disciplining uh, factor because the comparison between the situation that they endure there uh, with the situation they find in Italy still makes Italy look like an improvement, even if they are super exploited and basically live in ghettos and in very poor housing conditions and, and so on. Thank you, Lucia. This is a, a very, very fascinating overview of these issues that go beyond Europe. And I think you've really talked very well about the problem with what is what we start to call the, the European fortress and all the problems in European attitudes towards this migration crisis. And there will be a, a lot of questions to ask about this militarization and potentially also a lot of parallels to try to draw with, with India to, to understand also how similar issues take place in India or not and to which extent there are similarities with the European context. Rosa, you, you have recently published with a couple of co-authors a paper in Economia Politica uh, on the gendered impact of COVID on the, on the Indian labor market, in which you look at the trajectory of male and female workers in India as the pandemic unfolded. Your basic result from this paper shows uh, very stark differences between the trajectories of men and women. For women here, and, and I'm quoting the, the expression that you use, your findings tell a story of down and out. So what you find is that almost half of the women in your data, if I'm not wrong, it's 47% is the correct figure, that almost half of the women in the data exited the labor market because of the pandemic in almost equal proportions across different types of work, whether it's daily wage, permanent wage job, temporary wage job, or self-employed job. And on top of that, it seems to be, there seems to be more stickiness for women than men in terms of transitioning to another type of employment. In other words, it's not as easy for women following losing a job to move into another type of job as it is for men. So this is the one of the core results of the paper here. And I was wondering from a more sort of developmental or sociological perspective, what does that tell us about the nature of the labor market in India and specifically the kind of biases at work against women? And I guess what I'm trying to think of here is in, in terms of barriers to, to entry or barriers to transition. Are these barriers for women primarily on the line of societal norms? Are they primarily on the lines of policy or incentive issues? What is going on here, according to you, based on your experience now? Yeah, so I think when we saw the sort of results coming out from that analysis, we were really quite shocked because, like you said, it's it's it was you know a triple whammy: women more likely to exit. If they exit, they don't recover. And even, you know, even if, uh, and what's happening is men have this option to move into fallback sectors like, like self-employment, women don't. And what we think is happening is that, you know, one thing that we could clearly identify was that this is not happening because women are, were sort of employed in sectors that were more impacted by the lockdown and COVID. So it was not sort of something that was unique to them because of their industry attributes. What we are finding is that 
identity and other aspects which kind of put men in an advantageous position in the labor market don't do the same thing for women in fact it works the other way for women so if a man is highly educated it gives him a sort of one upmanship in the labor market it gives him access to good jobs it gives him higher possibilities of recovery women on the other hand if you're higher educated they're actually less likely to come back into work after losing employment so on the one hand there is a clear sort of social norms coming in here where when you are highly educated there are these sort of differences in norms that apply to you and there is also things like household responsibilities so if you are married and if you have a larger household size as a woman you're less likely to come back men definitely more likely to come back so things that sort of work in favor of men work work in the other way for women and in fact women really don't seem to have any aspect that gives them an advantage over men to the question of is it sort of a norms thing coming out definitely there is a sort of bias against women restrictions that allow uh, that sort of take them away from their work uh, there were also huge mobility constra- constraints but uh, this didn't seem to have affected men's work most of the men were able to come back into work here again women faced far more restrictions and they were not able to come back as a result on the policy side i wouldn't say that policy has a huge role to play in making this kind of a very gender biased recovery only because policy didn't have a huge role in the recovery as such mostly um, the policy response to the employment challenge after the pandemic has largely been in sort of measures to increase credit sources for industry and this has also come in the form of large infrastructure projects investment in construction sector both by the private as well as public sector to the extent that the construction sector and these kind of projects are uh, hiring more men than women there is some aspect of policy contributing to a very gendered recovery but in general what we are finding is that the policy in itself has not really boosted employment for instance what we find is that there was a huge boost in the construction sector with the value added in the construction sector going up few months after the lockdown and the restrictions being eased and so there was much applause for this and you have the governments kind of saying hey we are back on track but what we really see is that what does that mean for workers we don't see an equivalent increase in employment we see a fall in actually wage rates even as the construction sector boomed so i wouldn't call this a bias because of policy but rather it's because of the pre-existing structure of the economy and the pre-existing norms and uh, institutions that kind of keep women out of opportunities for fairly paid work that's really interesting so i just wanted to ask a quick follow up because um you so you talked about how the labor market is particularly gendered right and the uneven impacts on women and i'm wondering if your work allows you to also see how these gender differences can interact with other dimensions in india so you mentioned just in passing that there's a difference in terms of education level but what about caste class or religion do they make a difference yes definitely so this was what we saw was that so you have in india the sort of marginalized caste groups which are the scheduled castes and the scheduled tribes now when you look at their workforce recovery it's much higher in general which is not to say that they are doing better off but it's also because of the nature of work that they do so they are typically in daily wage work and self employment and these are the sort of more elastic kinds of work where there's uh, high rates of exit but it's also very easy to come back into those sectors so the the recovery that you see for the marginalized communities is really because of the nature of work they engage in but their wages have fallen and this translates in the same way for women too so even amongst women you see that women from marginalized communities coming back but not again at the same rate as the men from those marginalized communities did the other thing that we did find was with the intersection of religion and gender so what we found was that amongst muslim women so if if we had muslim women who were working before the pandemic and they lost their jobs so if you're a muslim as a woman you are less likely to come back into work 
So here we see a very clear intersection with religion and gender with Muslim women less likely to come back. And this was not the case for Muslim men. This is a... Indeed, interesting effects that you find along many dimensions. So there is some sort of interaction of all the, the different dimensions here. I do refer the readers to this paper published, as I said, with a couple of co-authors in Economia Politica, as it has all of the extra details about this dimension. But there is something when I read the paper that I found incredibly interesting from a development point of view and incredibly puzzling. Perhaps you already sense where this question is going. But you find in this paper that the predicted probability of job loss for women increases as education's levels increase. Okay, so women are more likely to lose their job the more educated they are in, in the setup that you've looked at. And this is one of the key results of the paper. And I found this to be, of course, a very puzzling and, and interesting results, unexpected. And my question is, could, could this be because the incorporation of women from relatively wealthy background to the extent that we admit that there is a strong correlation between income and education, which of course is not perfect. But could this be that, that the incorporation of women from relatively wealthy background in the labor market is fairly new, is a fairly recent phenomenon, and, and hence it is easier to undo, suddenly revert because of the pandemic? And, and if so, what does that tell us about the, the Indian context? I mean, so we were also puzzled by this. And I think in the paper, we mentioned that this requires further analysis. And it, it, we really didn't completely understand what was happening. I think what you said that it is the higher income households and then the norms that are coming into play. But it's also likely that, you know, these women are in sort of permanent salary jobs, which are actually the kinds of jobs that you can't easily come back in once you've lost it. So that could also be something that's happening. And definitely the process of sort of the reversal is, is likely. Interestingly, what we see in more of the official statistics that's come back, come around after the pandemic is that women's labor force participation has actually increased marginally. When you actually look at the, what has this increase come from, it's actually come from a huge jump in the share of women in unpaid family work. So this is really, you know, you're working in your family farm or in a small business, and it's typically not, they don't get a payment of their own. There's no wages that they receive, they contribute to the family earnings. That's where we see an increase. So while there may not be a, f a fall in the labor force, and so in that sense, a reversal, but the kind of jobs that women are getting to engage in might actually deteriorate. We saw something similar happening during a drought year uh, in India in 2004-05. There was a huge jump in female labor force participation rate. But when you dig into the numbers, it was coming from this unpaid family work increase. So it was essentially distress-driven work. What we also found from one of our other surveys was when women were coming into work. So we had a lot of entry of women into the workforce as well after the pandemic. But most of these women who were coming in were coming in from households that had faced a huge income loss, again, distress-driven uh, entry. So while we may not see a further fall in labor force participation, even an increase may not necessarily be a good thing if that increase is going to be manifested in these kind of work and employment. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, so Lucia and Rosa, given that there's quite a bit of overlap between the research of the two of you, although you also do approach the issue of labor quite differently, we'd like to also open up to see if you have any questions for each other. So let's start with you, Lucia. Do you have any questions for Rosa? I thought that uh, your um, statistical work is very interesting and fascinating in making visible uh, women's work that otherwise is made invisible by, by the statistics. So I thought your articles were very interesting. So in what way do you think uh, this uh, research on work and women's work also contributes to women's empowerment and the improvement in their conditions? Okay, thanks, Lucia. I think for me, how I've approached this is really that the idea that one is, of course, we're not capturing women's work correctly. So the argument that women are not employed or not doing productive work, it's a way to dismantle some of that notions. But also this larger neoliberal agenda that let's bring women into the workforce, which may not always be the best solution for women. And I think this is something that already exists in black feminist and queer literature, which is saying that paid work, it's not really as empowering or liberating as it's set, made out to be. And I think for me, that really putting that 
word out there, especially in a developing country context where there's most work is informal and poorly paid. And having that sort of tool in in women's dialogues and also uh, critiquing policy that just looks at this binary of in- increasing employment. For me, that has been, that's something that has been important and something that really drives a lot of the work I do and the questions that I look at. Thank you. Um, thank you both, actually. Thank you, Lucia, for the question to, to Rosa. And Rosa, you could uh, maybe return the favor. Would you have a question to Lucia about her research or about her papers, maybe? I have, uh, I have a very broad question, Lucia. So I've seen the amount of scholarly work you've put out in your books and journal articles, as well as in the media. I'm curious as to see what really was for you the work that you're most proud of and and why is that? I think probably I'm most proud of my first book on Marxist Capital, maybe because I I spent so much time on it and I thought it was probably the most innovative uh, thing that I wrote and uh, it played quite an important role for me personally. So I'm very proud of, of that book and well, I have translated it into English now and uh, I would like to publish an updated version uh, soon, even though it's of course difficult to go back to, to previous work and um, I think more recently, I'm, I'm very proud of the article on, um, on free labor in Libya and Italy. It's been uh, a very interesting experience for me in terms of also conducting the interviews and talking with uh, many immigrants and about their experience. And I think what I would like to do with this is to continue this work and also try to spread more awareness of the impact of the militarization of EU borders on labor conditions in Europe. Because uh, as I said at the beginning, I think there is a lot of misinformation going on and uh, this misinformation creates divisions among workers. And I think that labor unions and social movements should address these issues and the kind of around the militarization of borders, but not just from a kind of open borders versus closed borders perspective, but trying to address broader issues around imperialism, dispossession, uh, exploitation in Africa as well. And uh, what I, I feel right now is that there is a bit of a disconnection from this work. And uh, yeah, this is something I would like to devote more energy in the future. Thank you very much to both of you, Lucia and Rosa. This brings our episode to an end. It was great to talk to you to understand how labor markets can be hierarchical and also hear from the different approaches and contexts that you study. We hope listeners have enjoyed this podcast and we look forward to our next episode in which we will be talking about production and value chains. Thanks everyone and goodbye. Thank you. Thank you.